You're listening to the Sound Girls Podcast with Tori and Katie. Olga Fitzroy is a recording engineer and mixer. After a decade working her way up the ranks at Air Studios, from T-Girl to mixing the music for the 2012 Olympics, she is now freelance, working on projects for Coldplay and mixing the music for The Crown. She was named Recording Engineer of the Year at the MPG Awards 2016 and received an Ivers Academy Gold Badge Award in 2019. She was elected to the board of the UK Music Producers Guild in 2019. After having her son, she founded the hashtag Selfie Leave campaign, which aims to support freelance women when they have children by campaigning for self-employed families to get shared parental leave. As a result of her lobbying, a bill was read in Parliament and the government began a consultation on a change in the law. She was named number 11 in the BBC Women's Hour Powerless 2018 and won the Women in Music Campaigner of the Year Award in 2019. She ran for Parliament for the Labour Party in 2019 and has spent much of the pandemic campaigning for better support for those affected by the crisis, particularly engineers, producers, and recording studios. As a volunteer for the charity Pregnant Then Screwed, she led their campaign against mothers who have previously taken maternity leave, receiving reduced COVID support from the government. The result of this work is currently awaiting judgment in the Court of Appeal. She lives in London with her husband and five-year-old son. Welcome, Olga. Hi, thank you for having me. Welcome, Olga. (laughs) So happy to have you here in our virtual space. Doing good today, Olga? I'm good. Yeah, I'm feeling really relaxed. I've just got back from a weekend by the sea. This is my summer holiday this year. It's just a UK-based seaside little break. That sounds lovely. Can we all be there with you? Yeah, come on in. (laughs) Virtually. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) virtually. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. Uh, Well, uh, let's jump right in. Tell us about your roots. How did you get into recording and mixing? What started your love of audio? How, How did your whole journey begin? So when I was 16 at school, everyone did a kind of work experience for a week. And I ended up working in a theater with sound and lighting technicians. And that's when I first kind of realized that being an engineer was a thing. And they let me play with a mixing desk, route signals around. Um, I'd always been into music at that stage, but that was when I sort of got into the more technical side of it. And at school, I did a bit of live sound for bands, a bit of tracking for the school band night demos. And then I went and studied sound engineering at college for a couple of years. And after I'd finished that, I sort of knocked on some doors to some recording studios and they basically just kind of laughed at me. And I realized I needed a bit more under my belt. And I went on to the Tonmeister course that's at the University of Surrey that's quite well renowned and they make you do a year in industry. So they help you find a kind of internship placement. And at that point, I knew that I really needed that because I was basically just getting laughed at by people in studios when I asked them for a job. Um, So I did this course and I was really lucky to get an interview at Air Studios and they seemed to like me and offered me a year's placement and I sort of never really left. Wow. Yeah, that's crazy that they didn't want you. And then you, once you got the chance, you kept pushing and then just to see what you've done so far, just because someone gave you a yes is absolutely incredible. Yeah. I mean, I feel really lucky to, I realize it's a lot of right place, right time with music careers. 
So I was really lucky to get onto the Tom Meister course, really lucky to be selected for that interview and really lucky to be the person on that day that the studio manager wanted to hire. You know, I don't think there's any more than that being right place at right time and then making the most of the opportunities that I got. Yeah. Well, tell us about your um, working your way up from Tea Girl to recording the music on The Crown. Uh, how did your first years at Air Studio go? Um, I loved all of it, to be honest. I mean, I would always say that I learned more in my first three months at Air than I did uh, all my time at college in terms of actually being a sound engineer. You know, I learned plenty of stuff at college, but stuff that I actually use day to day in the studio. Yeah, first three months at Air was probably the biggest learning curve and most interesting. And some of it is obviously technical stuff, how the gear works, but a lot of it was just kind of learning how to act around clients, how to be helpful, but not in your face, and how to preempt what the clients would want and just learn the kind of flow of the session and then be able to be ready for whatever came next. And I think you can probably apply that to any type of recording, doesn't need to be film scoring in particular, that any type of session, I think that can kind of get you a long way. Yeah. So I have to admit, all of my friends have told me that I should watch The Crown and I've put it off. <laughs> Tell me why I should watch The Crown. And I would love to know like any insights on the audio side of things. Yeah, so I, I watched The Crown and I loved it. And I'm not like into the royal family particularly, but I absolutely loved it. Um, I think it's a combination. They've got just brilliant, brilliant cast. I mean, on the last series... Gillian Anderson played Margaret Thatcher. Um, I think this time around we have Johnny Lee Miller playing John Major, which I'm like, a little bit concerned about because I used to have a massive crush on him when I was a teenager, but I can't <laughs> fancy John Major. Like, it's just wrong. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm genuinely quite concerned about that part. In terms of music, so the composer is Martin Phipps and he writes in Logic and uses a lot of samples and things for his demos and then we go and record live orchestra and then keep some sample stuff and there's obviously a lot of programmed electronic sound as well so it's kind of a blend of different types of sounds and then I go back into his demos with my pre-mixed orchestra and just kind of tweak his mixes which is quite an unusual way of working like more often I would get stems from the composer and mix it all in Pro Tools and kind of start from scratch referencing the demo but with this, because Martin is kind of like, he knows what he wants. He writes in a really specific way. So there's no point in going back to square one and reinventing the wheel. So we kind of have a bit of a tandem approach where I'll record the orchestra. I'll take it back to orchestral premixes, send them to him. He'll carry on writing and mixing and programming using those premixes. And then I'll go over to his studio and do a kind of final pass on all the mixes. Right. Well, I, I read somewhere that um, recording for an album is different than like film scoring recording sessions, uh, like time-wise and yeah. such an approach. So can you tell me a bit about that? Sure. So like for film and TV, the schedule is generally pretty short. So you might do the music for two episodes in one day in the studio in terms of tracking. And then you might spend a bit longer mixing it. Obviously, on an album, again, it depends on the band, it depends on the budget, but we know that some records can take like a whole year to record and then months to mix. So it's definitely different from that point of view. Also, again, depending on the size of the band and how famous they are and how much leeway they've got with their record label, it can often be the band that dictates the schedule. 
but with film or TV, it's always the release schedule for the film or the TV series that dictates it. Um, like nobody cares if the composer needs more time or if the mixer needs more time. You just got to get it done on schedule. Right. So that's probably the main difference. But I think you can still apply a lot of the same kind of disciplines. Like you're still trying to get it as good as you can with what you've got available to you. So maybe on a, I guess, on a film or a TV session, you might have less time. But then you've also got often a really good budget to get fantastic session musicians to record in a really beautiful acoustic. So then that makes mixing easier. So you've kind of just got to get it as good as you can with what you've got available to you. And so you you enjoy, are you like working under that pressure? You can work it out? Yeah, I'm really used to it. I think I'd probably find it hard if there were no deadlines. I mean, you just, you just wouldn't stop. <laughs> yeah. So it, it's, it's good to have deadlines. And with the composers as well, you know, they know what they want. They've been living with it for a lot longer than I have. So often their demo will be quite a good reference and they'll also be quite clear on which bits are important, which bits are less important, so they can guide you in that process. Wow. I mean, you've um, you've done some work on like some really kind of like my favorite movies. I have a little list here. Uh, Grand Budapest Hotel, Les Mis, Scott Pilgrim, Ratatouille, Harry Potter 4. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I love doing like, the big film scores and Harry Potter again was a really fun one to do. Like it was number four. So it was already huge. We all loved the books. Pat Doyle was the composer on that one. And he, you know, you could tell that he loved the whole thing as well. And it was, that was a really special one to be involved in. Are you a Harry Potter fan? Yeah, I do like Harry Potter. Do you know what house you're from? Gryffindor. You're brave, eh? <laughs> <laughs> I'm a Ravenclaw. I love that. <laughs> I'm curious about like when you were younger, what music did you listen to that was kind of uh, inspiring to you that kind of piqued your interest in engineering um i used to love like bands like hole and stuff i used to be in a band that used to do loads of hole covers that oh, was cool. kind of my formative years and then i got into my brit pop as well like blur oasis those kind of bands who were you in the band uh like were you the lead singer drummer drummer wow yeah, sweet. Yeah. Well, that's really cool you still play drums then no i'm really out of practice like i've got a little um we've got some pads and things that i use now and then but like I would never play live now. I think the last time I tried to trap myself in the studio, I was just absolutely horrified by how out of time it was. But at the same time, I feel like we're all going to be naturally critical, more critical of ourselves. I mean, I'm not saying yeah. that you weren't accurate, but usually <laughs> we're, we're our own worst critic. I think so. And like you spend, like I spend the, every day being paid to like listen really closely and criticize the best musicians in the world go oh that was a bit out in bar four yeah. so then when I play it just sounds horrific to my ears <laughs> so how did um developing your critical ear go like was it part of that three-month crazy learning curve or did it take some time to get into that whole thing it took a long time I think I mean obviously in the first few years my opinion wasn't required on sessions but right. <laughs> <laughs> but then you know you notice the things that others pick up and go yeah I suppose they're right and you you kind of learn as you go but fortunately nobody needs to listen to your opinion for the first few years I like that perspective fortunately no one has to listen to your opinion <laughs> some grace I, I think it's probably for the best but definitely the first like couple of years of being an assistant engineer people's advice is just kind of like seen be seen and not heard right. like, ask questions after the clients have gone but nobody needs to hear your opinion on this and I thought, I think that's probably what kept me in a job. <laughs> that's very good advice. Everyone take note. <laughs> so when did that transition to when you 
could be heard happen? <laughs> well, I started um I started picking up, say like pick up sessions, maybe a score had finished and they had to come back for a day or the mix ran over, but the main mixer had to go on to another job. So then I just pick up the sort of the end of their job. So the beginning of that, I guess you would use their settings, maybe use their template or use their recall. So you kind of knew that what you were doing was right, but you were still the person sat there having to do the job on the day. So I would do a bit of that and also then in downtime, get my mates bands in and do sessions at weekends, that kind of thing. And then doing those pickup sessions after a while, there'd come a point where maybe that their main engineer couldn't do it. And then I would be, I would do a whole job by myself. So it kind of just transitioned from there. Wow. You know, that's interesting to me because I don't do studio work, but I do live. And with live, it's very much the same thing where we have the hierarchy where you have an audio lead for a show and we'll set all of the settings so that you have a consistent show for the cast, for the guests. And then you'll have operators come in and it's like, you know, here, here's, you know, the baseline and, but adjust as you need. And then it's usually those people who honor that and are the people that you can trust. And when you are ready to move on to another opportunity, then that's when you're seen as, you know, that person who's ready to take the next step. So that's, that's cool. Yeah. It's the same sort of thing. It's like not having the ego and just picking up where you're meant to pick up, but then also having the common sense and experience that if you do have to freestyle, you'll do something sensible. Can you tell us about, um, you mentioned two mentors, uh, one who taught you about experimental like mic placements and one who taught you about like patience. Can you tell us about your mentors? Yeah, yeah. So Jeff Foster is chief engineer at Air Studios. So he, I worked for him a lot when I was assisting in the hall in the big scoring stage. He was really good, actually, um, working with really inexperienced engineers and assistants and kind of showing them how to do stuff not minding if things would take a bit longer. So I think from him, I kind of, he definitely gave me some of those opportunities. And for him, he always is Mr. Consistent. He makes sure everything's super consistent. Um, Nick Willage has quite a different approach again, like a really amazing scoring engineer um, who I worked with at AIR, but he will change his approach depending on the project. So they both have quite different approaches. Yeah. I would say probably in terms of audio, I guess I'm probably more like Nick in that I do try and adapt my approach depending on the project. But then at the same time, there's still like a lot of go-tos that you just use because I think even when you're being experimental, you can't put something up that just doesn't work. So I've learned a lot from both those guys on the film scoring side of things. And then additionally, who? what other mentors would you name? I would say Rick Simpson, who produces Coldplay. I've worked with him a lot and he likes to experiment. Um, he's like Mr. Plugins, but <laughs> I don't have as many plugins as him, but he definitely, he's taught me a lot um, of like mixing, probably like pop mixing. I've learned most from him. He's not afraid of distortion. I like adding distortion to things a bit. I definitely, there's things that I've definitely learned from him over the years. How was working with Coldplay? Yeah, really fun. Those guys are really nice. And it's just nice to work on a project of that scale where you do get the time to get it really right. Right. So that the band are super happy with everything. Um, and there's not many bands that are in a position to work like that where, you know, they can record the album in one studio, then record it again somewhere else, then use bits from one session, bits from another session, and just take their time over it until they're perfectly happy with it. Yeah. And I think also working with a band that's so experienced that 
making those records. It's not just that you're getting to work with these great musicians and it's really fun and they've got a long time to work on their stuff. They're actually, they know what they're doing. They know how to make records. So definitely from the production point of view, it's like we often learn from them as well because like Chris has made so many great records. So that's really interesting as well. Yeah, that's got to be satisfying that it kind of goes both ways. That you're learning from each other and kind of just building yeah. it together. Yeah. Yeah. How long have you been uh, partnering and working with Coldplay? Um, so I first worked with them as an assistant on Viva La Vida. I think before that they had recorded air, so I sort of knew them to say hi to because I was a runner and bring them their drinks and stuff. But that was the first one where I was actually in the studio. And then Ghost Stories I engineered and Milo Zyloto, I actually worked with Spike Stent, who was over here, because his main assistant was, I can't remember, he was off, or maybe he was in the States. So I sort of took over that job. And then I've worked on a lot of live live albums and live DVDs. I guess they, they're not even DVDs these days, are they? But live shows, um, <laughs> live streamed shows for Amazon, we did. So yeah, that's kind of what I've done with them. Wow. Nice. So you've been with them for a while, which is... That's yeah. cool. Oh, and Paralympics, that was a fun one as well. So I worked on pre-production for the Paralympics closing with Coldplay as well. So what did that entail? What did you have to do? Um, so that was, they played a live show and it was just getting all the backing tracks. And I think it was a lot of new material as well. Yeah, gosh, it's a long time ago, but it was really in my mind because I'm watching the Paralympics at the moment. So right, <laughs> brings me back to those times. Yeah. Wow. So can you tell us, because I know right now something that's important to you is spending time with your son. Can you uh, give us a little background and talk to us about the hashtag selfie leave campaign? Yeah. So I had my son in 2015 and at the time I kind of thought, oh, well, maybe me and my husband will kind of share most of the childcare duties when he's really young, um, in the UK, they just brought in this shared parental leave system. So I was like, hey, cool, we'll do that. So we'll take a bit of time off each. And then I realized that self-employed people don't qualify for it. So if you're self-employed, it's just the mom that gets leave. And I know for listeners in the States, people are like, what, why are you complaining? Like, because the UK has quite a seemingly generous system compared to the States, I believe. But for me, it was just the fact that they had this great system where men and women could share it. And then for freelancers, for whom arguably it's probably most important to be able to dip in and out, we couldn't use it. it. So it just seemed crazy to me. So I ended up taking about nine months off on maternity leave. And then I went back to work and I definitely noticed I had to work really, really hard to get back in, to get clients to believe me when I said that I was actually back at work. I definitely had clients that'd be like, oh, we've got like a week session. Are you sure you can manage it? And I'd come into the studio. Occasionally we'd do this, these like crazy days where maybe I'd work the morning and then hand my son over to my husband who also works at the studio. And the amount of people that at the studio would then come up to me and go, oh, hi, how's maternity leave going? I was like, no, I'm here to work. I've just given my child to my husband. But there's definitely the assumption that now I had a child that didn't want to work anymore. Mm. So that kind of, made me want to change the law and make the shared leave system available to self-employed people. And I ended up meeting uh, this MP called Tracy Braben, who used to be an actor. So she really got what it was like to be self-employed and raise kids. And then she did this thing called a 10-minute rule bill, which is a way of getting a law through parliament. 
Now, nine times out of 10, it doesn't actually pass because the government doesn't want to agree to it, but it's a way of like raising publicity. So she did this and we did some big demonstrations outside parliament, got lots of musicians to back it. Coldplay, I think, backed the campaign as well. So it was a really big campaign. And then a few months later, the prime minister at the time, Theresa May, announced that she was doing a review into parental leave. But then those are crazy things. things have happened since then. So we haven't actually heard the outcome of the review because there's been quite a lot going on in politics. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there's a lot going on. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> I think we've had an election, a Brexit and a pandemic. But, you know, once those things are sorted, then I'm <laughs> hopeful that we'll be able to do some more campaigning on that and hopefully they'll change the law. That's amazing. That's always been on my mind of in any type of technical work, you know, you give so much of yourself to it and you pay your dues and, you know, you invest so much of your life. And then say, if you want, you know, if what works for you ends up being, you know, getting married and having, starting the family, you have to take time away from that. And then what happens when you're ready to come back? And, to me, that's very admirable that you've been advocating um, for that time, but as well as you know, showing in your journey that you're still the same person. You yeah. now just have a family, and you're more than capable to step right back into what you've dedicated your whole life to. Yeah, and like now, I think my clients are fine with it; they don't question it. But I definitely had to work at it and convince people that I definitely was back. What was your first um, like work lined up when you came back into it? I'm trying to remember, I'm not quite sure, but I do remember I did like a couple of days in the studio, just like one day sessions in the early days of maternity leave. So I think my son must have been maybe three months or something. And I did a day in the studio and I remember just feeling so happy that I was back. I mean, I was sleep deprived and at home, I just felt the only thing I achieved in a day was like create a whole load of washing and make some food. <laughs> Mm-hmm. And it felt so unsatisfying. Whereas in the studio, it's like, oh, yeah, I know what I'm doing. My day has structure. It's got a beginning, middle and an end. At the end of the day, I've created something that people like. Yeah. For me personally, I definitely needed to be back in the studio. And, you know, I know everyone's different and some people make the decision not to go back. And that's cool as well. But for me, definitely, I just had to just for myself. So I felt like me go back and get back to work. Yeah. So what's uh, what's your work life balance like now? I mean, it's a little bit random. I think COVID obviously had an effect that all the studios closed for three months during lockdown. But then I seem to find myself on the board of an organization that is meant to advocate for engineers and studios and producers. So suddenly I was super busy. I wasn't getting paid, but I was really, really busy. Yeah, it was weird having these calls with the government trying to persuade them to do research on like singing and brass instruments so that we could get back to work. I mean, work-life balance was just crazy. Um, and then the schools shut, which was, again, not helpful. Yeah. <laughs> but now, now it feels like I'm getting a semblance of, of normality back. Um, our summer holidays are nearly finished, so my son's about to go back to school. September and October are looking busy, all on interesting jobs. So it feels like I'm getting back to normal. But obviously, I mean, we're still in a pandemic. Anything could happen. I don't want to kind of jinx anything by saying we're getting back to normal. But it feels like there's a possibility of getting back to normal. It's a glimmer of hope. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so, yes, yeah, sorry, can you actually tell us more about um, volunteering with it's You're referring to... Um... No, so this was with the Music Producers Guild, which is like our trade union for music producers in the UK. 
yeah, we were kind of working really hard to get studios open again safely. Um, at the same time, I was also volunteering for Pregnant and Screwed, trying to get support for freelance women because the government did give freelancers some support in the UK, but based it on three years earnings so that any women who had had maternity leave got less money than men just because they were women. Mm, right. So we decided to take the government to court and we are still awaiting the outcome of that. Very impressive. Very like noble. Yeah. Like, <laughs> Were you always like that? Like were you in school like on like in all the clubs and stuff or is this like a not really I think I think it's since I had kids and I suddenly felt I was transported back to the 1950s like when I was at school and college you know we're all told like you can be whatever you want to be and do whatever you want and I was really fortunate in getting the job that I wanted and doing really fun things and then suddenly it was like time was rolled back and I was expected to be a 1950s housewife and I think that's for me what kind of like started the fire really yeah it's got to be frustrating work to deal with the government and yeah. I guess the bureaucratic stuff takes forever. <laughs> yeah, I mean, especially especially this government because they just don't seem to have even met women. Hmm. Like all the decisions they make, they sort of completely forget about women. There's like there's a couple of us in the world, right? There's like quite a few One women. Or two. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, like come on. <laughs> like So well, I know it's not audio related, but do you mind expounding a little bit? on the, um, you know, the main struggles that you've experienced with this? Sure. Um, I guess in COVID, like one of the ones I've already mentioned was this income support for the self-employed that just completely forgot about maternity leave and decided to pay women less. I mean, obviously, closing the schools has a much greater impact on women who end up taking up much more of the homeschooling. Um, what else did we have? There was a whole thing of, I think at one point, the pubs in the UK were open and the schools were shut and you could go to the pub and have a drink with your mate. But if you were giving birth, you couldn't have a birthing partner or your husband in there with you. So, you know, those kind of things. Wow. So Pregnant Then Screwed is founded by a lady called Jolie Brearley. And they have like loads of people on Instagram that follow them. So a lot of the things that came up were people messaging or just us watching the news. There's the little WhatsApp group of a handful of us who are kind of the key volunteers. And we'd watch the news and be like, oh, have you seen this? I mean, a lot of these things, you didn't need to be a genius or sort of go deep into the bureaucracy to work it out. It was just blatantly obvious that the minute they announced this self-employed support scheme and what the criteria were, how they worked out what you were getting paid, I just knew instantly that women were going to get screwed over. And mm. it does beg the question, if a bunch of women who are not professional policymakers can see these things, why does the government not see them? And I think it's basically because it's an old boys club and probably most of them have never had to worry about childcare. Yeah. Yeah. Which seems really easy to pass off if, if it doesn't, you know, impact your life. Yeah. I just, I don't think it crosses their minds to be honest, or if it does, it becomes a not important thing, even though it affects 50% of the population. Yeah. Mm. Again, that's amazing. Good for you for for being part of that. Yeah, thank you for being a voice. Fighting the good fight. We try. <laughs> <laughs> what do you, um like, what comes to mind when you think of, like, highlights of your career or things you're just especially proud of? Um, I loved mixing the Olympics, music for the closing ceremony. I mean, that ended up being one of those pickup jobs that we spoke about. So Nick Willage was mixing it, and he mixed a lot of it. 
and then he had to go into another job and so I ended up mixing kind of the other half of it so yeah that was just an amazing opportunity David Arnold was the musical director on that and it was a bunch of bands I mean like Ed Sheeran Mm. Tiny Temper, Tayo Cruz, just amazing artists had done these performances for this and the closing ceremony. And I was really lucky enough to mix it quite early in my career. What was the process like? So they were all performances that were recorded specially for the closing ceremony. And we would record a TV mix and a fully mixed track. And then the artists on the day, I think, could decide I think most of them sung live, but we obviously had to have a full mix just in case something went wrong. But so it was just like a normal mix and we mixed to stems, I think. It's quite a long time ago. I'm trying to remember what we did. We, <laughs> I think we started off mixing on an analog board in Studio One Air was probably where we did a lot of the mixing. Again, the schedules being what they were, we did move around some studios. Um, so some of the tracks ended up being more in the box. Some of them ended up being more analog. Yeah, I mean, we would just be sent the multi-tracks. Some of them would have been done in air, some of them at Abbey Road, some of them perhaps at the artist's own studios, and we would mix and then, again, send them back to the artist for approval. So I think on all these tracks, the artist would get final approval on our mixes as well. And David would be kind of overseeing it all um, in the room all the time. Yeah, I mean, he he earned his money on that show. He worked so hard. (laughs) Are artists usually quite picky in general with a mix? Is there a lot of notes back? Um, on that one, I'm trying to, th- I don't think there was anybody that it felt like gave a crazy amount of notes. I mean, there was the odd notes, I mean, but it seemed fairly straightforward kind of process to get through. So no, not on that occasion. And in, on others? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, some artists have more notes than others, but again, it's how long the piece of string, like when's the deadline? If the deadline's ages away, there'll be more notes than if it's tomorrow, <laughs> generally. And I guess these days, like on especially on the film and TV stuff, you have a demo that you can reference, so that should get you in a really good place. Obviously, if it's a brand new album, then you're kind of wandering around in the dark a lot more because you haven't got this reference of the artist's vision, um, and the artist might not even know what their vision is, so that can be more tricky. Right. But definitely on the stuff that's for film and TV, you've got the deadline, you've got a demo, So that kind of limits the amount of changes that can really feasibly happen. Right. Can you tell me about recording um, Daughter at Air Studio? That was a really excellent performance. Oh, yeah, that was that was so fun to record and mix. Um, When they do the sort of recordings like as live sessions where they have the cameras and everything, you kind of have to compromise a bit on the setup because you have to make it work for the visuals. Right. And that's kind of where you have to like work with the director and and the band and just see what you can get away with from an audio point of view and see which things are kind of deal breakers for them and come up with something that you can all work with. Like you're not never going to go, this is perfect for me because you're making a bunch of adjustments for other people. But that's kind of the key element is just trying to get as much as you can in terms of audio while still keeping the director with something they can work with. So on that one, The whole band played as live. They were quite close together for kind of visual reasons. And I seem to remember, I think they wanted monitor wedges. Um, Either they didn't have in-ears or maybe they had in-ears as well as wedges. I can't really remember. But there were wedges with loads of vocal in them, which, again, obviously affected the quality of the audio that we could get. 
so there's it was wasn't like the perfect recording but it was really usable and then we just spent we spent a long long time mixing it actually this is one project where there were a lot of notes from the band but it felt really collaborative so we just spent a lot of time at my studio and other studios just kind of tweaking the mixes did it all we mixed it all in the box and I think everyone is super happy with the result Mm. it should be yeah it's uh it's really (laughs) lovely it's really nice thank you so when you're in the studio uh recording say a large project like Harry Potter, for example, what's the vibe inside of the actual booth? Like, who do you have with you? And does it feel like there's a lot of pressure? Like, what, how does it feel? I think on those sorts of sessions, probably the most pressure is on the director and the composer. This isn't about Harry Potter specifically, but any kind of big Hollywood film score, there will be the director and the execs will have heard the music in demo form these days. Again, I think at the time of Harry Potter, there was probably less of that. Mm. But these days, like they would have heard really high quality logic demos of what was about to be recorded. So hopefully everyone's approved the demos and that's why you've been allowed to spend money to record it properly. But obviously there's some occasions where perhaps there's all sorts of things going on that you don't even know about in terms of where the picture is at. They may be re-editing. In some cases, they may be reshooting. Like if it's really in trouble. Um, so there's all these things that you might not know about. Again, I think the composer is under a huge amount of pressure to deliver, and some of the things that they're under pressure about may be outside of their control. Like if the picture isn't working for whatever reason, it may not be because of the music, but that's the final thing that can be changed before you get into reshoots. That like you can change the music. So. It's a huge amount of pressure. So I think as an engineer, your job is just to take some of the pressure off the composer or at least not add to it. So just be there. You know, you've basically got to try and support them. So typically in non-COVID times in the room, you would have the director, you would have the composer, you would have some execs or producers from the film company who are ultimately in charge. You might also have some execs from the music department of the film company. You'd have music editors, orchestrators, copyists, um, composer assistants. So you end up with quite a lot of people in the control room. Yeah, as an engineer, you've got to kind of just read the room. Um, if there's producers are particularly nervous about a certain sound or something about that cue, you can do a lot in how you're balancing it, like the live mix at the time to just try and get everyone on side. I think your job is to get everyone to like what they're hearing. It's a lot of anticipating. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And you're almost, you know, it sounds like you're almost producing a live mix, but at the same time, then you have the opportunity to then go tweak it later on. So you still have, you know, the pressure and if I may say the excitement, the thrill of producing, you know, that live product, yeah. even though that's not going to be what, um, what the consumers eventually hear. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and I think it's, it's almost more important because if it sounds terrible during the session, then it could have a really big impact on what happens next. So it's almost more important than what you deliver to the dub. Yeah. Um, what advice do you have for up and coming recording engineers who are looking for opportunities uh, like the ones that you've had? 
I think take the opportunities that come your way. Like I know right now it's really difficult with COVID and stuff. And I know a lot of places still have restrictions on people coming in. But I think, you know, even if you end up just meeting people for a coffee and just getting yourself known and being nice to people, because I think a big part of the job, particularly early on, is just having a pleasant person in the room because the job initially, you're making tea, you're plugging things in. You don't need to be a technical genius, but you need to be a nice and helpful person around. So even if it's harder at the moment to make those connections, I think still keep persevering with it. Um, even if you have to perhaps, like I say, go for a coffee with someone and you can't maybe shadow them in the studio um, just try and keep up those connections would be my advice. Oh, very good advice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this was, it was really lovely to talk to you. It's uh thank you for, for joining us today. Yeah. Really nice to meet you both. Nice to meet you. And uh, next time we go to London, uh, we may have to uh, reach out. But you can get us all tickets to Harry Potter world, right? Absolutely. Yeah, that's the deal. <laughs> you got it, man. Okay. I'll, I'll share the butter beers. Brilliant. <laughs> Thanks so much. See you soon. Thanks, guys. Thank you for listening to the Sound Girls podcast. Visit soundgirls.org for more information. The Sound Girls Living History Project is a collection of oral history interviews that highlights the careers and achievements of women and underrepresented groups in audio. One of the interviews is with Jesse Dodd, an ADR and Foley mixer who has over 250 credits in both TV and feature films. What I've learned listening to those of you coming up is that you have no idea what's out there. You really don't know what you want to do. I just want to be in. I like to edit. Do I picture edit? Do I sound edit? What, you know, there's just all these different ways you can go. And then there are things that you don't even know that exist. I want to let people know that I exist and that this exists. Be sure and catch the full interview with Jesse Dodd, along with all the other Living History interviews, over on the Sound Girls website or YouTube channel. Looking for more audio-related podcasts to listen to? We're part of the Audio Podcast Alliance. Be sure to check out what our friends in the podcasting community have in store for you at audiopodcast.org.